All right. I'm here with Lisa Villa. Lisa, it's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, my God. Such an honor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think the last time we saw each other, I was actually at your place, but this was years ago. Um, and it's been such a pleasure to watch your evolution and to mm -hmm. see uh, the platform that you built with Women of Impact and obviously the new book, Radical Confidence. It's been beautiful to witness. And and in preparation, obviously, for our conversation, I did some deep diving, read the book and, and, and listened to some of the interviews. And what I think is so powerful is I feel like even though you've sort of you built a billion dollar company, you're so relatable because you start off with this story of, you know, sort of your insecurities and and, you know, this the the period um, of, of being a housewife and, and sort of some of the struggles that you and Tom went through. And I'd love it if you could just start by sharing. Uh, I mean, I, I think anyone who who Googles you now will, will see this, you know, at least this perception of this incredibly powerful woman, which you are. And what I love is that you're not living in the facade of that. You're mm. presenting a very relatable, very realistic context and basically sharing a way in which anyone can really own their own confidence, own their own truth, and if you will, sing their own song. So I'd love to hear, if you will, a little bit of the background around um, where this journey started for you. And, and obviously that can go as far back as childhood, but it could just be, you know, uh, you know, where this kicked off um, in, in this in this chapter with you and Tom and and sort of the beginnings of starting Quest, et cetera. I'd love to hear sort of the origin story. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, I think the origin story for me is so important, like any kind of superhero that you ever read about, right? It's like, it makes it more powerful when you actually hear where they started. And the reason why that's important is um, it reminds me of a quote that um, the amazing Lisa Nichols said. So I'm not sure if you know who she is, amazing sure motivational spe speaker. So she said, don't make me extraordinary to let yourself off the hook. Yes. Now, I love that. I heard her say this as I'm sitting in the audience in such awe of her and inside the dialogue, the narrative in my head was like, she's so amazing. She's so amazing. You could never do that, Lisa. Mm -hmm. And as I'm thinking this, she says those words. Now, that woke me up. It made me realize that we can see other people and put them on a pedestal to actually relieve our own worries of, you know, well, I can't do that. I'm not that good. And so a big part of what I love talking about is so many people turn to me and say, Lisa, I want your confidence. Where do you get your confidence from and I realized that actually by me saying yeah it's confidence is doing everyone a disservice because if you heard how insecure I was as I do all of these things that you think is confidence you wouldn't perceive it as confidence it's taking my insecurities it's taking my weaknesses and it's putting one foot in front of the other every step of the way no matter how bad I am at something and this all started when I was the stay-at-home wife for my husband I was brought up as a young Greek girl told that my future would end up being a stay-at-home wife I would support my husband and have kids and flash forward I end up meeting the love of my life I have these big audacious dreams of being in the movie world and yet I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are not shocked to, to hear that life takes over, right? The realities of life happen. And so you make sacrifices. You say, well, it's just for the greater good. It's just going to be a year. I'm going to go after that dream when, when I have enough money, when I have enough time, when I have the confidence. And that's exactly what happened to me. So I 
felt like I blinked and eight years went by. Eight years of me sacrificing, eight years of me swallowing my dreams, eight years of me not speaking out loud to say what would make me happy. Eight years of believing that I had to serve other people before myself. And after that eight year mark, my husband was just just as miserable, chasing money. Him and his business partners decided they were going to start a company predicated on passion and a mission. Now that happened to be a protein bar called Quest. And as a good supportive wife, because at that point, after eight years of telling myself, this is where I was meant to be, I believed it. So at that eight year mark, I was asking my husband, how can I support you? What do you need as the good Greek wife? And so he said, just ship a couple of bars from our living room floor. Just weigh a couple of ingredients. Now, what we didn't expect is that that company that turned into Quest Nutrition would grow at 57,000%. Now, when you're growing at 57,000%, that takes you from zero to a billion dollars in five years. It made us the second fastest growing company in North America. And I went from being a housewife, supporting my husband, putting his clothes out and cleaning and taking care of two dogs to then flash forward. I've got a department of for 40 people. We're shipping $80 million worth of inventory in and out of that production department. And I have zero experience. Now, what does that reality look like? Every day, you're facing things you have no idea what you're doing. Every day, you're facing things that you are actually inadequate to face. You have zero experience. So when we all say, like, the imposter syndrome came in and the mindset came in, it's like, you're not good enough. That was all real. I wasn't good enough to tackle that. The imposter syndrome of what on earth are you doing, Lisa, all came flooding in. Now, in those moments, I had a choice. Either run away which meant we lost our house because our house was up on the, uh, at, for, on the line. Or I can figure it out. Now, when you face obstacles, when you face challenges, those were my options. And I had a choice. And even though I didn't know how, what I was doing, I said, Lisa, you can either learn this or you can run away. But if you run, you lose your house. The decision and choice is yours. And when I was able to put it that blankly, that like brutally honestly laying it out on the line like that I couldn't hide and so I said well I guess you've got to figure it out now when you tell yourself you have no idea what you're doing and then you end up figuring it out after a while you start to begin to gain competence in that area so this thing that I had no idea what I was doing I was completely insecure I was completely unequipped I was completely inadequate as I started to go one of my favorite movies of all time is the karate kid wax on wax off And what I didn't realize, but I was actually doing is I was waxing on and off till it got to the point where I was extremely competent. And what ended up coming along with that competence was the confidence. So the confidence became the byproduct of me getting started, figuring it out, falling on my face, getting back up, brushing myself off and moving forward. And that became the, the blueprint to who Lisa Bilyeu is. That became the blueprint that I put in my book of it's not who you are. It's not the mistakes that you made. It's how you handle them. Do you stay on the floor or do you get back up? And the whole book is about how on earth you get back up, even when you're inadequate, even when you don't feel great, even when you have that voice telling you you're no good. So beautiful and so powerful. And the, the, the distinction of competence breeding confidence is, I think, so important because 
I feel like in society, we're sold this false narrative that when I have X, then I will, uh, then Y will happen, right? When I have the perfect partner, I'll be happy. When I have X amount in my bank account, I'll be happy. And of course, we know that that's a fallacy, right? It's it's actually who we're being that attracts our results. But we be, we build the muscle of our beingness by doing the shit that's uncomfortable, right? Like this, like exactly as you said it, right? Like we, we, I think the, the, the fallacy of confidence is I feel like we believe that like, oh, when we're confident enough, we'll finally launch that podcast. We'll finally write that book. And it's like, you just wrote a book, right? You've launched this incredible channel. I tell you what, I'm in the process of writing my book now and it's confronting like imposter syndrome creeps in, right? Like all these things, these voices creep in podcast. I sat on for years before launching it. And it's like, but yet, you figure it out. And like you said, you become, not only do you become competent, but you also like, I feel like um, in a way Providence comes in to greet you, right? Like the universe Mm -hmm. rises up to support you and you build, you build that muscle. How did you, as you were building this competence, like what were the the mantras or the techniques or the tools? I know, you know, I love the story of your Wonder Woman necklace, but like what are the what are the what were the tools that you enabled for those who are feeling really uh, rife with insecurity that enabled you to keep going in those moments of self-doubt? Yeah, the, I mean, this is that thing that if we can really get that hook, if people can really understand this, honestly, there's no stopping you because mm-hmm. I wrote a chapter called um, when the shit hits the fan, wear goggles, because the whole point is people need, we all need to stop worrying about if the shit is going to hit the fan, if you fail, if things go wrong, the most amazing thing, the most freeing thing you can hear is it will like it absolutely will. Now, the beautiful thing is that once upon a time, we used to think, right? Like, oh my God, if we fail, it means something about us. We think it means something negative. So the very first thing I want people to say is when they worry, oh my God, like this failure must mean I am a failure. What it actually means is you care enough about your life to give it a shot. So that's the very first thing, right? That orients me into not feeling like I am a failure. It's just like, oh, I actually care about my life that I'm stepping out of my comfort zone. I'm doing something that I actually don't know if I'm good at yet, but I'm going to give it a shot because I care about my life. Okay, great. That's one orientation. Next thing is you will fail. So now when you fail, why don't you worry about like wearing the goggles? That means what are you going to do when failure comes? because it will come for you. And now it just stopped me from having to worry about it. Like that, that worry is like, oh my God, am I going to fail? It just stopped the worry. And now it oriented me to, to be um, more in the solving mindset, right? Instead of the panicking, um, concerned mindset. So now it just goes into solve mode. Okay, when it happens, what am I going to do about it? And so one of the most incredible learning lessons that ever happened to me was early days of Quest. So we just made enough money that we could now start to hire people to come in and make our bars for us. And there's one day, this one guy that was running our production comes in and he looks ghostly white and he's petrified and he's stuttering. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I've messed up a batch of bars. Now, like a lot of like in early days of when you're just starting out your company, the, that makes a difference. We lost about $5,000 of a batch of bars. And so he was literally thinking he was about to get fired. And so I'm starting to panic. My husband's like, look, Before we judge this failure, let's just see what we've got before we actually freak out. So we go in and the guy's explaining, okay, I I was making a peanut butter batch and I was putting in the peanut butter. I put in the peanut flour. 
flour, I put in the peanut protein powder, and then I accidentally grabbed the mixed berry flavoring from the next batch that I was going to make. And I accidentally mixed those together. And so, oh my God, what are we going to do? So my husband's like, let's just try it. So we take a bite and someone's like, you know what? It kind of tastes like PB&J. So in that moment, we're like, oh, let's take this failure and see what we can learn from it. So we quickly wrap it into nondescript wrappers. We blast it on Facebook because this is like 2010, 2011. We blast it on Facebook that we've got a new prototype, limited edition, right? Because we only had like 200 bars. And so we sold out like that. We sold out faster than we normally sell out. Then everyone started to try them. Everyone loved them. They started to say on Facebook, oh my God, you've got to start launching this this PB&J flavor. All the people that didn't get a chance to try the flavors were getting major FOMO. So they're like, oh my God, you have to release this. Before we knew it, we made the designs, we printed them, we got them wrapped. We started to sell PB&J and it became our number one top selling bar. Amazing. So that is how you take a failure and make it the most impressive opportunity. That is how you take a failure and you get back up. I love that. I so love that. It, it, it's all, it, it's in the frame of reference, right? It's like compost. Like how do we turn the crap and turn it into, <laughs> pop, you know, like opportunity for new growth. I, I so It actually reminded me when we started, my background was starting a music festival called Global Citizen. And actually now it's 10 years in, it's raised over $40 billion. But at the time when we started it, the biggest challenge we had was we wanted to host it on the Great Lawn in Central Park, but you can't sell tickets. And so we were like, oh, we invested all this you know, time, energy, the limited resources we had. And all of a sudden we can't host it on the Great Lawn. But then we, we actually flipped it on its head and we made it so, hey, let's not sell tickets. Let's make it so that people give us their actions. They learn and they take action. And those actions become incentivization points so they can earn their tickets. It's a gamification. Mm. We'll create a lottery. And that actually, that mechanic that came from a, if you will, a failure or a challenge actually is the key to all of our growth, right? It, it empowered millions of people to take all these actions. And so oftentimes it is exactly as you articulate those quote unquote failures I feel like that lead to many of our of our greatest successes. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like that frame is so so potent and so powerful. One of the other distinctions that you drew that I that I absolutely love, and I don't know if you had thought about it in this regard, but you know, you talk about sort of, if you will, building the muscle of confidence and that notion of like putting your shoes by the bed and like on day one. I'd love for you to go through that uh, because. What it evoked for me, I don't know if anyone's ever drawn this analogy, but this idea of, of breaking down your component, your goals into very small manageable pieces is like one of the number one strategies of like, you know, like the Navy SEALs, they talk about getting through hell week. It's all about like just focusing on the five feet in front of you, you know, or the guy from uh, touching the void who was left for dead. He had his femur broken and he was a thousand feet up left alone in the Andes. He didn't focus on the thousand feet, this huge goal that would have like, you know, basically overwhelmed me, focused on the five feet in front of him. Mm -hmm. And I feel like one of the key distinctions, at least in my reading of your teaching is, is this notion of like, you build the muscle of confidence through small, very incremental daily wins. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I love this so much because I was the person that would get frozen because I would think about that big freaking audacious goal. Um, And then not only that, I think 
so many of us, we can convince ourselves that we're, we're moving towards the goal, right? Where it's like, well, I read this article, I listened to this podcast, right? I listened yeah. to Lisa and Michael, like, oh, I, I'm on the path of getting, you know, my mind, my growth mindset. And it's like, we can convince ourselves. And so because of that, I realized I was convincing myself that I was moving forward and actually I was on a treadmill so I was, wasn't going anywhere you know it's like mm -hmm. it's like I thought I was on the street walking and moving somewhere but I actually wasn't so this allowed me to actually take the blinders off my own my own dreams and my own goals so that I could actually see number one what something would take to achieve that's super important and it's a game called no bullshit sorry can I swear on this podcast of course one a few times okay of course one a few times I haven't even asked you so um we call it so no bullshit what would it actually take because we say very often we want something in life but the realities of what it's going to take sometimes doesn't align with the life we want and so every day we convince ourselves that we're moving towards it. We blink a year or two years later, we look around, we're like, we're not even there yet. And what we can do is we beat ourselves up for either being, oh my God, see, you're useless. That's why you haven't gotten there. Well, no, no, sometimes it's just, we haven't identified what those small steps are to take every day. And then also we haven't asked ourselves, do we want to take those small steps? So this is, um, as a quick example, one thing we could do is say, um, okay, I want to gain 20 pounds of muscle. Let's just say, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So I say to myself, well, I go to the gym. I go to the gym like twice a week and, you know, I pick up 10 pounds and I don't understand why I haven't put on 20 pounds of muscle. Okay. Well, you need to play the game. No bullshit. What would it actually take to put on 20 pounds of muscle? And this means you have to literally remove your emotions from it all you're doing is actually just writing the game plan you're not saying if you want to do it you're not saying if you actually would like to do it all you're saying is what would it actually take so for me as a female I would look at other females that have got 20 pounds more muscle than I do and I would look at their lives and I would look at how long they've been lifting for so maybe I look at them and I go okay they've been lifting for 20 for 10 years so for me to catch up because of where I am in my career you know what, Lisa, you actually have to lift um, three hours a day for the next seven days for four years in order for you to put on 20 pounds of muscle. That also will mean, Lisa, you have to give up all date time. That also means because you actually don't have much, um, you're not earning very much right now now and you need a gym membership that actually means you have to stop going out with your friends that means you actually have to stop date night you have to stop going out shopping um and because actually I really need one of those belts to help with my back when I'm deadlifting I actually have to sell my apartment and now save up enough money um in order to buy okay I've just done the no bullshit what is it actually going to take mm -hmm. for me to build 20 pounds true cost Yes, exactly. You have to, you can't eat cake on your birthday. You're no longer, you have to still eat your chicken breast and broccoli, whatever. All I've done is write the list of what it's actually going to take. And now the beautiful thing is I get to look at that list and I say, is this the life I want? Do I want to not go out on a date night? Do I want to not eat cake on my birthday? Do I want to lift three hours a day? for 10 years or whatever I just said. And now the answer may be no. Now, the beautiful thing is I've just realized that my goal doesn't align with the life that I want. And now what I do is I just say, I've decided I don't want to put on 20 pounds of muscle. I'm now not beating myself up over why I'm useless, why I didn't get to my goal, why I didn't achieve it. But it also does the flip. It also 
also says, yes, I want it. Now I've just got an incremental game plan. I go, cool. Number one is maybe you just need to buy one of those belts to help your back. Then the next day, maybe you just need to get better shoes. And so that's what you're going to focus on. How do I earn enough money so I can get enough shoes so that I can deadlift? And then maybe the next day, right? You say, okay, my stretch pants don't work. So I need a different type of shorts to wear. And each day you come up with a list of how you incrementally get to that big freaking audacious goal. Because if you just wake up and go, all right, today I'm going to put on 20 pounds of muscle. It's like, geez, that's just so overwhelming. You may not know where to start. So this game allows you the beautiful thing in coming up with the realities of what that dream is going to need and giving you the incremental steps to take those, um, to take the steps towards that goal. Mm, I love that. It, it's, I, I feel like people, it's the, it's the projection into the future that keeps people from even starting, right? Um, in the Navy SEAL example, you know, actually at a time, so BUDS is the most challenging physical, cha- you know, it's, it's the most trying physical challenge on the planet, basically, right? Have you seen that series, by the way? It's like BUDS Week or whatever it's called? No, I got to watch it. Okay. Okay. I'm going to Google it after this. The insight I garnered, and and I can't remember if it was from, it was Goggins. I can't remember who it was, but it was basically this insight that said, surprisingly, the time in which most of the people who quit buds happens is not when they're lifting the 400 pound log or five days in when they're getting sprayed with a hose and they're like in freezing cold water. The time when most people quit, they ring that bell out, right? The toughest people on the planet is when on the first night they're watching the sunset and the instructors in the silence are saying, you think you're tough. You think today was hard. You haven't even scratched the surface. And so it's into the projected reality that most people in life ring the bell, right? Not in the actual doing of it, not in the hard things that we think we can't do. It's actually in the projected reality. And I remember, I think I was listening to you and Jay talk, and you you talked about your early dreams as a, as a filmmaker. And what I love about what you just shared earlier is that sometimes we listen to a podcast and we think we're actually moving closer to our goals when we're actually procrastinating, right? Like, and you And you talk about like, I have always had this dream of being a filmmaker, but in your mind, you didn't do what you just articulated as what would it look like to gain 20 pounds of muscle? What would it look like to make a film? Instead, you were like, okay, I'm going to wait till I have X, Y, Z results to create this hundred million dollar big budget film where instead of just taking my iPhone and for free creating a two minute film, right? Which is a step that's totally accessible to anyone. And I was like, that's exactly it. Like, how do we just get on the field? You know, how do Mm -hmm. we start making plays? How do we whatever those incremental steps are, how do we, how do we do that? And what I love about your, your approach is you're not saying you're waiting until this divine date where we feel like we have confidence. We're actually building the, the, the confidence and the competence in confronting in our imperfectness on a day-to-day basis, the things that scare us the most, at least that's my, that's my interpretation, which I love. A thousand percent. And that comes from the fact that I have been on both sides of it that I to your point I sat there I waited I felt like I wasn't good enough and so I saw where that led and it's what I call in my book purgatory of the mundane Mm -hmm. which is your life's just mundane enough that you don't hit rock bottom so many incredible people that I've interviewed in my life where they've done amazing things is usually stems from the fact that they've hit rock bottom and there's they've got nothing else to lose Mm -hmm. and so in that moment where you're like well I've got nothing else to 
lose. I may as well go for it is where the success comes. And, but what about so many of us, like the hundreds of millions of us that don't hit the rock bottom? That's where I was. And I was stuck there for eight years because I partly used gratitude as a beautiful way to self-soothe when I was you know, waking up and I was like, I don't love my life. It's like, yes, but Lisa, aren't you grateful? You've always wanted to come to America. You've got a husband that loves you. You've got a roof over your head. Now that can be beautiful. But the problem is that people don't talk about is if you keep doing that, what ends up happening is gratitude is the exact thing that keeps you stuck. It was the exact thing that after year six, year seven, year eight, every time I started to question, Lisa, are you happy? Lisa, you're not happy. Lisa, you need to speak up. The gratitude would come in and it'd be like, well, Lisa, how ungrateful are you? You know, you, you, you want, you want a career and yet you have a roof over your head. How ungrateful are you? You don't want children, but you have a husband that loves you how ungrateful are you and so that gratitude we don't talk about keeps us freaking stuck and so that is exactly what happened to me for eight years it was just mundane enough that I didn't ask for anything else wow I just had a it's a bit of an epiphany because I feel like it's a bit like the equivalent of spiritual bypassing you know yes, like you, yes. you know where you're like instead of confronting uh, we, we kind of, oh, yeah, and gratitude can obviously be a, a hugely powerful tool for our own well-being and is rooted in, in, in joy and fulfillment. But if we use it as a tool to negate over the, the deep, the suffering or, the, or, or the, the deep desires that are, that, are, that are the deeper cut and instead, you know, uh, stay in the shallow end of our own, of our own capability and perception because we're, we have to be grateful, then we're actually deluding ourselves, you know? Yeah. And like, I feel like um, there's so many opportunities. It, it evokes for me. Um, I don't know if you've ever had, uh, I, I, maybe Tom's had on the show, um, Stephen Pressfield, the author of War of Art. Have you ever, have you ever spoken with him? No, I don't think so. I, I'd love to connect you guys. He's actually in Los Angeles. He wrote one of my favorite books called The War of Art. And what he talks about is the manifestation of resistance. And what you're talking about evokes that for me, because whenever we have this huge audacious goal, resistance will manifest in all of the distractions that we, that we, that we, that we find ourselves in, right? Like our brain is ingenious at that. Anytime you're committed to, and I'd love to hear this because I mean, you've now launched this massive podcast. You launched, you've written a book. You've, you went from eight years of, uh, of, of not and I, not to judge, but like perhaps not fully embodying the, the full nuances of your dreams and reality to really going after it. And I feel like I'm guessing in that process, resistance would have shown its face, right? Self-doubt would have shown its face. H- how did you, um, and maybe that's through the, writing the book or, or talking about women of impact, what, what it, whatever it may come to you, how did you in the face of that resistance um, continue to stay the course, right? Continue to continue to stay in that growth mindset and not get derailed by all of the little insidious ways that we sabotage ourselves or even stay on that gratitude that prevents us from that deeper cut. Yeah. Oh my God. So I think the first, because of Quest and its birth, it really did pull me out of where I was and thrust me into a situation where I basically could either drown or freaking you know like doggy paddle my way to the side and so um with anyone listening right now I think that a big key is to think about um you know we all say a lot of us I should say give up we sacrifice we say well we're going to do that when and 
So the first almost pivot is to ask someone, what if that when never came? You say you're going to do something that's going to fill your heart when. What if that when never came? That's the first thing, because that is like, hopefully that jolts people into, oh, well, then I guess I have to start today, right? That's kind of the catalyst. Um, but it also means is that you have to truly believe and really freaking believe that just because you love certain parts of your life, I'm, I'm in love with my husband. I'm so grateful for, of course, having a roof over my head. But I also have every single right to want other areas of my life to be happy, to be satisfied, to be um, a fulfilling part of me. And so I want people right now to really just ask for more of their lives, right? Just because you're grateful for certain parts of your life doesn't mean that you can't be absolutely driven and um, like push and excited to change other aspects of your life. So that's one thing just accepting that just because you may love your kids doesn't mean you can't go out and have a career or have an amazing hobby or if you've got an amazing career it doesn't mean that you can't um you know have an amazing family so just really realizing that you are putting your own um uh rules to what you can have and what you can't I think that that's really beautiful if for me to assess my belief system and then question why I believe what I believe so that's kind of like number one um, and then I think it goes into what is that thing that's going to make me happy? That's going, I'm going to love, even if I'm failing, even if I never get there. Because for me, when I was a stay at home wife, it was, I just got to get through today. I didn't love the daily acts. I didn't love the results. I didn't, I wasn't, um, I didn't feel good about myself. And so what I do now is there's no guaranteed success. Like even with my book, when I was approached by a literary agent, they said, oh, Lisa, would you like to write a book? The very first words out of my mouth was who on earth would buy a book from me? Mm. So I had the insecurity. I had the self-doubt. And let's be honest, if I've never written a book before, why the hell would I be confident in writing a book? Mm. That's just blind confidence, which I actually don't subscribe to. So I just gave myself the grace to say, Lisa, this is something that interests you. This aligns with your mission of impact. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to give yourself the grace to go all in, to give everything you have. And at the end, you may fail. But are you going to give your all? Are you going to be proud at the end of it? Because again, you can't guarantee the success. I didn't know if my podcast was going to do well or not. I didn't know if my book was going to do well or not. You don't know. But you better freaking believe I am attached. My mission is to impact women. So you better believe I tied my emotions with how hard I worked to the goal. And so now, even if the book fails, I can show up and be proud of myself because I know I gave everything. I don't know if the book's going to do well. I don't know if it's going to succeed, but I left everything else out on the table. And so now all that I have left is to know that if it didn't do well, I'm the type of person that gets back up and learns from the failure. So beautifully said, because to me that occurs as true confidence, right? Because it's not confidence based in validation. It's not, Why? it's not confidence that is uh, tied to the ever-changing 
uh, perception of those outside of yourself, but actually is sourced within from knowing what you put into it, right? Regardless of how it's received. Now, hopefully it's received well. And I mean, I can tell you from, from my research, it's definitely been received well and, and, and is, 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 you know, you, it's opened, I imagine so many doors, but the beauty is at least from my understanding, you committed, right. And you saw through like, one of the things I realized, which I share is, is you talked about, for example, as a, as a child, you know, having a learning disability or some type of, of diagnosis in that regard. And I, I had the same, right. And so it's interesting is like, in committing to write a book like you, you know, you're like, these old identities can be very um, sabotaging can, bo- can bind you because right, these are some of your earliest programs, right? Yet, and still when you transcend, right, if for no one, you know, like, if no one else reads the book, now, of course, that's not the case. But like, if you transcend that, and you write a book from someone who was told they have a learning disability or dyslexia or whatever, like, that is true confidence. You know what I mean? Like, to me, that's like, that is radical confidence, because it's not based in like, this external. But I remember for me, the podcast, it was like, I took myself on a Fleetwood Mac show. Stevie Nicks, I know you're a, a fan of Powerful Woman, a powerful woman yourself. Stevie Nicks, one of my favorite people on the planet. I took myself to a date in LA and they did a tribute to Tom Petty, who had just died. And mm. I had always had an opportunity to go see him. Actually, there was a show in LA, a friend of mine. We started Global Citizen with the guys from Coachella. I literally could have made a phone call and gone. But I was like, no, I'll catch it next year, you know? And that night when I went to go see Stevie Nicks and I did this tribute to Tom Petty, I sat there and I thought, now that's a guy who lived his music. You know, that's a guy who sang his song. And I was sitting at that point on a ton of episodes for my podcast that I had yet to put out in the world because I was so afraid of like what people would think about or how many people would listen, you know, or, yeah. and that night I committed, I was like, you know what? I don't care. Maybe two people show up, maybe no one shows up, but I am putting out my song. I'm not going to die with my song in me. And I feel like that's so beautiful because that's such an important distinct distinction that you exemplify, which is that notion of like, you do it, you do it for yourself and for a mission that's bigger than yourself, right? Like you have a, a mission to make impact for this, for, for women to show them what's possible, you know, and you've done that. So I feel like that's, but, but, it, but, but there's so many different voices that could get in your own voice and the voices of others that could potentially sabotage that. And yet, yet it's not, it's an, it's an inside game first. I feel like. A thousand percent. And this is why, even with what I talk about in my book, it's so important that like I, I talk about the validation piece in a chapter mm-hmm. called validation is for parking yep. because we can all get steered by it. And here's the thing. It's always, I'm the type of person that gives myself grace for being steered by it. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, I do get steered by validation Whether it doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve how I show up. So I know it. um, I need to alter it, but I don't beat myself up for being there. So I go, cool, Lisa, right now you're being steered by validation. You want to feel good about yourself. I get that. But it is fleeting. You are looking outside of yourself to feel good about yourself. And as you know, that can be so detrimental to your growth and your happiness. So I recognize it doesn't serve me. And so I go, cool, I do it. That's okay. It doesn't serve me. I need to change it. And now how do I change it? It has to be um, very deliberate because I naturally seek external 
for validation. And so it becomes this stepping stone of, okay, what am I about to attack? How can I build before I even take my first step? Like with the book, I literally was like, I know myself. Everything I'm talking about, when I spoke about failure earlier, that doesn't mean it doesn't freaking sting. It freaking sucks. Failure sucks. And if I wrote the book and it failed, it would suck. And so I recognize that. And I recognize I'm the type of person that if it sucks and I got, you know, terrible reviews, I would start to beat myself up and I would start to say, Lisa, you're not good enough. So I recognize that I'm instinctually going to move towards other people's opinions. I know that is dangerous. And so before I even released the book, Michael, I told myself, Lisa, how are you going to make sure you don't, le- you don't let the book or how people feel about the book dictate how proud you are of the book? And so I gave myself a rule book. So I literally gave myself a game plan. So I said, all right, Lisa, number one, you can't think you're confident for writing a book. You've never written a book before. You've got D's in English. Let's just be honest, Lisa. You may not do well. So number one is acknowledge you don't know what you're doing. Beautiful. That's the voice in the head. Lisa, the imposter syndrome. You have no idea what you're doing. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's the, the negative voice in the head. It's warning me. And that's what I do. I take the critic in my head and I use her as my coach. And I actually go over a whole chapter in my book, Radical Confidence, of how you take the critic to make it a coach. So anyway, I took her. She's telling me, no, you're no good. I listen to it. She says, you've never written a book before. She's my coach now. You're right. How do I get good? I made a list of all the things that I, how to get good. So I said, okay, you can read books about how to write books. But also, Lisa, you're good friends with a lot of New York Times number one authors. Mm-hmm. Hit them up. So I made a list of 10 questions. And I just hit up all my famous friends who have all written New York Times number ones. And I just went down the list of questions. I was like, okay, so what was the most surprising thing? What was the thing that you hated the most? What was, what, how was it beneficial for your business? How was it beneficial for your mindset? What's the thing that you wish you had known? And I just wrote a list of questions. And I interviewed like, I think maybe five or six of my friends. So that that was my learning piece. Then I said, how are you going to make sure you're proud of the book? What does that actually look like? And to me, that meant I gave it my all. That I'm not going to use excuses, that I'm too tired. I'm not going to take off a Saturday because um, I wanted to hang out with my friends. Like I'm actually going to give it my all. I then wrote down what does giving it my all mean? Because to me, self-care is still very important because if I don't do my self-care, I can't show up. So I gave myself, this is what it means to you, Lisa. This is how much you have to work. This is how much self-care you have to do. And then I kept breaking it down. And I said, what does success look like before I've launched it? And so I... I went through that process. I gave myself the blueprint. I went through the blueprint. Once I locked my book, I sat down and I had my book in hand. And I said to myself, am I proud? Yes or no? Okay, great. Then what you're going to do every day is you're going to ask if it doesn't do well, why? Because you are the learner. And that's the last Mm. piece is that I gave myself the grace to write a shitty book. (laughs) And so if it ends up being shitty is what I mean. I don't want it to be. But if it ends up being like that, the last piece is I'm going to be proud because I've just laid out the game plan and I've executed the game plan Mm. because that's on me. How, if I showed up, that is on me. That is not an influence of, oh, but so-and-so did this and the economy was like this. No, no, no. Did you, Lisa Billy, show up yes or no? That is in my control. If I can say yes, now if it falls apart, the last piece that I can be proud of is what did you learn from it? Mm -hmm. What mistakes did you make? What do you wish you would 
do differently. And now I walk away from that entire experience, having validated myself that I'm the kind of person that shows up and writes a book, even when she has no idea what she's doing. I'm the kind of person that writes a book and puts it out into the world with giving it your all. And I'm the kind of person that if it fails, I've learned from it. Now you can understand at the end of it, even if the book fails, I can validate myself because I've just done everything I've just said. Mm. So powerful and so true, right? Like, and I, I, and also insightful to think about, like, I love that you interviewed your friends who have been through the process. Like you set yourself up to win and you also articulated what a win looks like for you, regardless of the external validation, regardless of the external results. What, what, I mean, I don't know if anyone's asked you this, but like, where you are now, because I imagine, you know, it's out, uh, you've, you've written a beautiful book, it's been well received. But for you, like what has been sitting at this stage right now, what has been some of the greatest insights from the process, right from the process itself? Like what have you not necessarily the content even but like what what in the process have you learned as like a, a great takeaway that that you're applying in other areas of your life? Oh my God, so much. And really, it's almost like I've built two very successful companies and yet it made me realize I know nothing about business. <laughs> like there's so many areas. There's so many areas that you end up thinking, you know, I've hired multiple people that have dealt with it. I think I know until I get in the weeds. And I'm like, what the hell are you saying? And I'm like, oh, it's so beautifully humbling. Yeah. Beautifully humbling. I love it. So, um, Really, and then the last thing is there's a quote from Jay Z that me and my husband say all the time when you think you've got it, and then someone else comes by, you know, like when you're in like this, like you're in a little yacht, and you're like, Oh my god, this is so beautiful! Look how beautiful this yacht is, and then one of these massive cruise liners come, you know, goes by, (laughs) and you're like, Oh, okay. Like the phrase that we say that comes from Jay Z is there's levels to the shit. And that's what made me realize is, oh, there's always levels to the shit. And it's Mm. so humbling, which I love because here's the thing. And I don't know if I've adopted this idea out of self-soothing because I'm just not good enough. But the idea that I love is there's always room to grow. There's always Mm. things to learn. And actually, when you realize it, you don't know anything about anything. And (laughs) it's become amazingly humbling and such a beautiful place to be because now I just love the process of learning and exploring and I've learned into it more like I'll clap my hands and run them together it's like all right what are we about to learn you know because I don't know anything and so it it becomes yes just a way to for me to be able to grow for me to be able to make mistakes for me be able to come into any situation and mess up and not be worried about other people saying oh but you've built a billion dollar company oh my god but you've built impact theory how do you not know well I I literally don't mind sitting here and say oh yeah I still don't know anything about business and of course I mean that tongue-in-cheek because there is stuff I do know but there's also a whole load of stuff that have no idea Mm. and I don't mind saying it because I thrive off the growth I thrive off being in my 40s and still going oh my god where am I going to be in my 60s what am I going to learn you know if I've already just learned all this that I've already learned in 20 years imagine what more I'm going to learn and imagine what next book I'm going to put out and even as I'm writing even as I'm doing this podcast with you right now I also think to myself I want to listen back in a year and go my god Lisa what the hell were you talking about you didn't know anything 
because <laughs> that's the mindset I've chosen to adopt mm. because I want to give myself the grace to mess up, to mm. give myself the grace to explore, to give myself the push um, and the like the excitement that you'll never get there. And that's amazing because I thrive on the progress and I thrive on the journey. Mm. Beautifully said. It's so it, it's so it's so beautiful to hear also like someone who's successful by all societal measures in the in the humility of man, there's so much I don't know. And I'm thrilled about it, right? From that growth mindset perspective of like, I can't wait till I'm in my 60s, you know? Like imagine <laughs> what I did in the last 20 years, you know? Like I think that's like so empowering because it's such a contrarian narrative to what society tells us, right? We have this cult of youth and, and we don't really have reverence for our elders. And I mean, these are all huge topics we don't have to go super deep into, but I love that you're like, man, I'm just getting started. And, you know, like, I can't wait for a year from now to look back and be like, oh man, like I've learned so much that I, I you know, I can say X, Y, and Z about that. I, you know, I, I love that perspective. One question that is evoked for me, because I think, for me, I can say for myself as, as still a single person. And I know, uh, you know, I know a lot of your audience is women. And I know a lot of my dear girlfriends who are also single kind of uh, look to partnership. And sometimes we look to partnership in a way as something to uh, complete ourselves, which is probably a, fall a, 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 a fallacy that society has, has sold us. That said, I will say, um, a friend of mine once said, it's not a coincidence that there are no single presidents. And what he meant by that is, you know, for anyone to be presidential, whether that be man or woman, you know, ostensibly there's a power in having a, a partner that holds you to your highest. And I'm curious because what I've, what I've, from my listening, and this is my own observation, but I'd love obviously to hear firsthand. It seemed to me that you had this particular notion, like even when you were a housewife, right? Like, to, at least in my understanding, from the paradigm that you grew up in, in this sort of perhaps older world, Greek orientation, you know, the previous generation, this was, you know, you were actually like embodying and showing up in a big way, just commensurate with perhaps an older, an older paradigm, right? Now, now you're showing up in this incredibly powerful way where you're, you're a, a, an incredible businesswoman. You built a billion dollar business. You're, you're writing books, you're launching podcasts. So you have this, like you've, you've been in, in sort of a variety of these different contexts and through it all has been a partnership. And obviously your husband uh, is also executing at a very high level. Um, I'm curious to any insights that you can share around what aspects of this process for you have been like hugely codifying and, and really have kind of helped you define yourself as an individual and to where has the community or your partnership really fostered the, the building of this radical confidence, right? Because I think also in the West, we have this notion that everything is an individual achievement, right? And having lived in Sri Lanka where it's very community centric, um, you know, it's about the exaltation of the collective. And I'm just curious because I really respect your relation. I mean, we don't know each other super well. Obviously I've been to you, your house and chatted with you and Tom, but I don't know you deeply well, but I have a sense that you have a relationship that any, that many of us would want to emulate. And so I'm curious to what distinction you can share how the, your confidence has been built sort of within yourself and, and how that also has been fostered through your, either your relationship with Tom and, or your community and team that you built. Yeah. Thank you. I love this question because 
for context that people may not know, so I just celebrated my 20-year wedding anniversary with Tom. Congratulations. Um, we were babies. Thank you. We were babies when we met. So, um, yeah, we, um, we've definitely gone through a lot building companies together. But um, first of all, I actually want to say that I realize I haven't said this. So for anyone that's listening, I want them to really um, understand that when I talk about being a stay-at-home wife for eight years there's zero there's nothing wrong with that it just wasn't the life I wanted so what I talk about even with my book is what life do you want and how do you get it so even for anyone listening where you may be in a career that you fought for for the last 10 years and now you're like I really want to start a family I actually don't want to do my career anymore this book's for you too like the Mm -hmm. whole point is to say what life do you want and how on earth Earth. do you get it what are the things that are holding us back so I just want to kind of emphasize that that's going to be very important yes um so now and then now I've forgotten your question <laughs> and now the question really oh, is husband. to what degree is it has the yeah. confidence that you articulate been born really in and of yourself and and how has that process uh been fostered through your relationship really your yeah. relationship your team um to what degree how do you see that how do you see that coalescing like how how do the two lend themselves to each other So the thing that I think is really interesting in this whole journey that I've been on and the journey with my husband is the narrative in in the world has changed. So I was a stay-at-home wife, brought up very traditional Greek Orthodox, thinking I was going to have four children, married my husband, stayed at home. And that almost was what it was expected anything different anything out of that was against the norm so me kind of going into business and speaking up and having the conversations with my husband that I no longer wanted to cook for him that I no longer wanted to clean for him that I'd already been doing that for eight years was very difficult in navigating that then telling my my husband who he married I said I wanted four children and then you know eight years later I tell him I don't want any children so a lot of this Um, that I talk about in the book and with our relationship, it's so nuanced, but it all kind of comes down to, in the world, we kind of want a blanket statement. You don't need anyone, girl. You don't need a guy, right? Like, or, um, or the other where it's like, oh my God, you're single. Like the single shaming, which I've got a lot of friends that are feeling because it's like, oh my God, you're single. And like, there's the shame around that as well. And so to me, I think it's just important to recognize that one of the biggest lessons that I've discovered that I wrote about in my book, actually, if you don't mind me sharing this story. Please, I would love it. So I'd been married for a long time, thought thought ourselves as being very codependent. You know, you complete me, I complete you. Um, we were, we thought we, we were very comfortable there. And I got very sick. I had massive gut issues. And that was going on for a good few years. I'm in the middle of a photo shoot one day. I've got tremendous health issues. My gut is spasming. So I excuse myself from the photo shoot. And I run upstairs. We're having the photo shoot in my house. And I run upstairs and I collapse in our bathroom on the floor, holding my side, trying to take a deep breath. And the rule is that me and my husband, if we ever really need each other, that you call three times. And so we can ignore the first call because maybe we're in a meeting. We can ignore the second call because maybe we're on a phone call. But the third call means even when you're, if you're with Oprah Winfrey herself or the president of the United States, if one of us calls three times, you better answer it. Mm -hmm. That's our family, the BU family rule. So I'm on the floor. I'm clutching my stomach. I call him once. I knew I wasn't going to answer. I call him twice. I knew I was going to answer. I call him third time. I'm thinking, ah, he's got this. And he doesn't answer. Now in this moment, My backup plan's gone to shit. And I'm like, oh God, what do I do? 
And so I'm on the floor. I've got my phone in my hand. I'm clutching my stomach and I'm saying, I need my husband. I need my husband. I need my husband. And then I realized, well, crap, he's not coming. He's not coming to save me. Well, hang on a minute, Lisa. Do you actually need him or do you want him? You you are the hero of your own damn life. Get up off the effing floor because you got this. And in that moment, I got up off the floor. I took deep breaths and I went downstairs and I finished the photo shoot. Now, afterwards, Tom saw the phone. He saw that he had missed calls and he comes running to me in absolute horror. He's like, oh my God, are you okay? And I just turned to him and I was like, I've got this, babe. It's okay. Now, that story has stayed with me for about four four years now. Tom still hates it because to him, his identity is being of the husband that's there for his wife. And I understand that. And I've heard his complaints that he doesn't like me telling the story because it is a dent to his identity. But I also tell him it is the most beautiful thing to my identity because Mm. in that moment, I realized I didn't need him. I wanted him, but I didn't need him. That we all are heroes of our own lives. And if we can realize that we want a partner and there's nothing wrong with that. And for some reason, society says you shouldn't want one or you don't need one. It's like, no, you don't need one. But yes, maybe you do want one. And isn't that beautiful? Isn't it beautiful to say, I am not with someone out of necessity. I am with you, even though there's 7.3 billion people in the world, I choose you. I choose that I want to be with you. A, I think it's a beautiful position to be in. B, it makes um, each other, like you should feel privileged that they've chosen you and same vice versa, right? It goes both ways. That when there's 7.2 billion people that they're with you, not because they have to be, not because they need to be, but because they want to be. It is a beautiful notion. And then that last part is there's so much message in the world that you don't need a dude and you don't need a partner and you should be single or the opposite are you happy this to me is the most beautiful way of framing things it's the most beautiful thing to lean in to say I want a partner and I deserve to be with someone that wants me to and there's no shame in that there's no freaking shame in saying that you want someone but at the same time you know that you don't need someone and that you can absolutely have your own back. I think on that note, uh, let's let's call this beautiful conversation. Guys, go pick up a copy, Radical Confidence. Uh, it's, it's an incredible book. Lisa, where can people find you? Obviously, you have Women of Impact, but where's the place for, for people to, uh, to tap into your work? Thank you. Yeah. If people like podcasts, they can go to Women of Impact, my podcast where I interview incredible women. Um, also, Radical Confidence is the book. If you go to radicalconfidence.com, I actually got a lot of free giveaways over there. So people can go purchase the book and then they can get all the free good stuff over there. And then if they just like Instagram, um, I, I love Instagram. I do like some fun quotes and stuff. But then even on my stories, I just like the real stuff, as you can tell, right? You know, to me, it's if I'm going to show up, if I'm going to spend the time doing anything, it better be real. It better be authentic and it better be a true um, reflection of who I am. So I do a lot of like Insta stories with behind the scenes of just how I live my life. And, you know, I'm always trying to bring value. So, um, and empower other women to be freaking badass or other people to be badass and get radically confident themselves.
themselves. Heck yes. Thank you, Lisa Bilyeau. It's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And I, I love this conversation. Thank you so much for having me.